God is good. All the time. Good evening, everybody. Merry Christmas a little bit early if I don't see you around Christmas time. Good evening to all of our friends joining us online. Say a comment. Shoot something out there. We'd love to know where you're joining us from. It's so good to have you. So earlier this week, this Monday, I ran into Jim and Candy Niemeyer. Uh, Jim and Candy attend here at Christ Church. They're awesome. They help serve in a lot of different ways. And Candy was telling me uh, this Monday that there were some shenanigans that were happening after Wednesday night service. Now, you guys may remember from last week, I mentioned uh, a lot about the wise men, right? So we know based on a whole bunch of things, or we have about a 99.9% certainty that the wise men did not come to uh, Jesus on the night of his birth. And I mentioned, you know, that if we want to be a little more biblically accurate, we would actually have the wise men in our activity scenes further away. So Candy let me know that last Wednesday night, somebody here decided to move all of the wise men basically through the church and all of our nativity scenes. Well done. I don't know if that person is here tonight, but good job. Like, that's awesome. I love that. So that's hysterical. So tonight we continue our four-week examination of the Gospel of Matthew. And we will be looking at chapter 3 this evening, where we are going to be jumping forward quite a lot of years. When we last saw Jesus, he would have been maybe a toddler, and now we're seeing Jesus right as an adult. So here in the Gospel of Matthew, we actually skip some of the stories that you'll see in the other Gospels. Now, as a reminder, again, we are not taking an in-the-weeds look at the Scripture, going verse by verse by verse in great, great detail, nor are we kind of blasting past everything at 30,000 feet. We're somewhere in the middle. We're going to slow down at certain parts. We'll speed up at certain parts. And so in that vein, again, please do not consider me a trail guide, a la Reverend Shane, and his amount of detail, I'm more of a tour guide. I promise I'll get you from A to B safely, but the rest is kind of in the middle. Okay, with no hesitation whatsoever, with no more delay, let's go ahead, let's get in the air and take a look at our verses for tonight. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. So John the Baptist is awesome. Uh, If you've seen the episodes uh, from The Chosen where you see John the Baptist, they actually do a good job on that, uh, where they call him Crazy John and some of that. It's actually kind of funny. He definitely has, according to what we see in Scripture, the gift of prophecy. Um, Reverend Shane has talked about the gift of prophecy in the past, Uh, oftentimes prophets are not the most uh, tactful people. They're not the most, you know, sympathetic or empathetic sometimes. They're very abrupt or can be abrupt. And we see some of those character qualities in John the Baptist here when we look at them. Now, prophets are awesome. Uh, I love prophets because they have this brutal honesty about them. They kind of know exactly what they're supposed to do, exactly what they're called to according to the Lord. And they really make no apologies for that. And that's kind of fun to be around sometimes. Uh, I have only really ever known one prophet in my life. Like one person that I know guaranteed had the gift of prophecy. And a few years back, I was at a Christmas party with uh, this prophet. They were there with me as well. And I was in around mingling with folks and I ended up talking to this younger couple. 
And they were wonderful, they were excited, they were engaged to be married, so everything was roses and rainbows and butterflies and life was perfect, right? It was just fantastic. And so we got to talking about their wedding and about, you know, their upcoming wedding and the excitement of marriage and all the joy and and the goofy stuff with marriage. It was great. Enter the prophet. (laughs) So they were in a good mood. They're like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And so this young couple, of course, just batting their eyes at each other and like, oh, we're getting married soon and it's going to be so great and all that. And without missing a beat, I mean, like nothing. The prophet's like, well, you're not living together, are you? I mean, if you are, you certainly better not be sleeping together because if you are, that's a sin. And you really don't want to start your marriage out on sin because that is a terrible way to begin your marriage. And have you ever been somewhere and you're like, I want to be invisible. Please take me out of this. Like, have you seen that really funny uh, gift that's out there where Homer Simpson just kind of like walks his way into the bushes? That's what I wanted to do. I wanted out of that situation and I wanted fast. That's sort of the prophecy part of this. Uh, Nothing that the prophet said was wrong, but there wasn't a ton of tact involved there. Just cut straight to the heart of things. And we see a lot of that here with John the Baptist. John the Baptist just goes right to the heart of stuff. He doesn't cut around anything at all. He was kind of a wild card. He was deeply passionate. He was committed. And he was absolutely certain what he was there for. And there was no extra room for anything else. Frankly, if I had to guess, I don't think John the Baptist would have been welcome in most churches today. I think he would have been too abrupt. I think he would have been too harsh for what a lot of people would consider is socially acceptable in Christianity today. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. Because sometimes we need the harsh. We need the abrupt. We need to be corrected when we're wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. I would much rather be corrected and change course into what I know that God has for me than continue on a bad course, continue in making bad decisions. And so John, in all of his things aside, he is there to be there for the mission of God, and that is exclusively what he's there for. Now, his message in verse 2, Repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Depending on your Christian background, your faith background, religious background, you may either have a lot of background on what repentance is or maybe none at all. Um, As a split, I'm just curious, who would say they've actually heard a lot about repentance growing up? Okay, and who would say like, nope, kind of a new idea? Okay, understandable. And I mean that because repentance may or may not get a lot of territory within churches. So we're going to kind of dispel some of the things. We're going to figure out what it is. But ultimately, it is a very crucial part of being a Christian, and we'll see why. So, some things that we need to keep in mind here with repentance and the importance of repentance. I'm going to read some verses to you. So we have Matthew 3, 1 and 2. Repentance was the first word of John the Baptist's message. Repentance was the first word of Jesus' message in Matthew 4 and in Mark 1. Excuse me. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples in Mark chapter 6. And repent was the very first word in the preaching instructions Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection. So we see consistently through the New Testament that this command to repent is immediate and fast and it hits hard. 
So, of course, this raises the question, what is repentance? And again, knowing the details here really matters. The Greek word is metanoio, and the definition is pretty multifaceted. Um, It's got some complex parts to it. The simplest definition would be to change one's mind. That would be the simplest definition, and that wouldn't actually do it justice. A more thorough definition would be to express a change of mental direction. So imagine you have your mind set on something, determined, committed, and then you completely change your mind. That is a better way to look at it. And in a biblical context, to repent means to change your mental direction from sin to God. This is how it all comes together. When we look at repentance, some people think this is something we do uh, or we kind of do on our own. There's, there's no real tangible result to it. And again, this is why studying the Bible is important. Repentance is a verb. It's an action to be taken. This is not just a thought process or something philosophical or anything like that. Repentance is an action that each one of us needs to take when we are giving into sin or committing sin. Now, some people might claim, and I've heard people say that, well, repenting is really just saying I'm sorry, right? Wrong. Disagree with that completely. And in fact, I'm going to quote the late Robin Williams saying I'm sorry. If you were right, I would agree with you. You'll get it later. Don't worry about it. Saying I'm sorry is not repentance, guys, no matter how much we want it to be. Saying I'm sorry is not asking for forgiveness. Yeah? How often do we hear people say, well, I'm sorry, and it means nothing? There's no substance to it. There's no restitution or reconciliation that comes from it. It's just admitting, well, I did something wrong. Usually it's saying, I did something wrong and I got caught. Sorry. So if I go outside and I'm like, oh, well, I'm in a hurry, boom, I smash and hit your car, and I'm like, sorry, see ya. What has changed? Absolutely nothing. There's been, well, yeah, damage. (laughs) And then I leave. You know, nothing has changed. And so we have to consider with repentance, especially, we're looking at a major change. We're looking at a desire change in our hearts. So when we change our mind, when we change our mind and our hearts towards God, It's changing what maybe even got us into that situation in the first place. It's changing some of these desire pieces. So what does it mean to repent? It means we recognize we've sinned. We can't repent if we don't think we've sinned. So hear me again on that. We can't repent if we don't think we've sinned. (laughs) Now put it in the greater context of society. There are a lot of people who don't recognize their sin at all. They just accept it, and they just go with it. So they're not even in a position where they can repent. Second, repentance means that we don't want to continue sinning. This one I totally get. Have you ever been comfortable in your sin? Have you ever just got so comfortable with whatever the, the struggles you have that you just see them... As, as part of you anymore, that you don't even know that you want to be out of it. I've been in that spot. It's terrible. I don't recommend it. But when we repent, we recognize that there is a better life for us. There's a greater good here with God, but we have to desire that. That means we don't want it anymore. Third, 
It means that we know a life with God and not sin is best for us. This pushes on a lot of areas because there are some things that we do, let's face it, we admit it, that we kind of enjoy. (laughs) We kind of appreciate or it helps us climb the ladder or it helps us gain favor from other people or whatever, but we know on some level it actually is disagreeable with God. It's tough. We have to recognize that when we repent, that God's plan for us is better. And fourth and finally, repentance means that we not only have the desire to turn towards God, but we take action towards it. Repentance is a part of action. So here's a simple prayer for repentance. We are all in need of repentance because we are all sinners, myself included very much in that. Would you please pray this with me? Dear God, I have sinned against you. I don't want to continue giving in to sin. I know being obedient to your word is what's best for me. I ask that you would give me the motivation and desire to turn towards you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Simple prayers of repentance. We don't have to make it big and elaborate. We don't have to use Victorian English or anything like that. It can be very, very simple. Moving on. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So as we've talked about a lot, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is filled with prophetic language. It's talking constantly about these prophecies that are fulfilled through Christ, and here is another one of them. John the Baptist, though, is the fulfilled part of the prophecy here. So he wasn't just Jesus' cousin, he wasn't just a teacher, he wasn't just somebody who was called out to the wilderness to baptize. He was part of the mission that created here through Christ. And one of the cool things I love about John when you study him is how much of a servant he was. There were a lot of people who were wondering if John was the Messiah because of his ministry, because of the success of his ministry. And he even had to go to lengths to say, no, 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 that's not me. No, that's not what I'm here for. He's the one. And it takes a real servant's heart for that. As we enter into Christmas time, uh, the church gets to be nuts. It's a lot of fun around here. Even during the day, it gets to be really busy. And one of the cool parts about working at the church is getting to see behind-the-scenes stuff. And we get to see so many of the servants, so many people who truly love to serve God. And some of you are in this list. Like, there's no question about that. Some of you are incredible servants, and thank you in so many ways. Uh, But when I specifically think about servanthood here, I think about our janitorial staff. They're the -the behind-the-scenes people that not a lot of you may or may not know. I don't know. But Miss Brenda and Chris and John and Mark, they help to take care of this beautiful building for hours upon hours every week. They prepare it. They tend it. They fix it, they make it better, they improve this incredible place for the Lord. That's their goal, that's their gifting. So if you happen to run into any of those group, again, it's John Roach, it's Chris, it's Miss Brenda, it's Mark Mann, they're excellent. Please extend a thanks, because Christmas does not happen without their help. They do a phenomenal job. Verse 4. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. So, it's not Chipotle, but 
I mean, it's an option, I guess. You know, uh, nobody looks at grasshoppers, or locusts in this case, as like a good edible meal. <laughs> at least I don't. And this is where we look into context again. It really matters. So many scholars believe that John was an Essene. Uh, there are a group of people who tended to live into the wilderness, who kind of excluded themselves from the rest of society, and this group was called the Essenes. In many ways, think of them uh, as another version of Judaism, like we would the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? Uh, if you're thinking of kind of denominations within Judaism, you're getting to be on the right track. Now, the Essenes are never mentioned in the Bible, and we need to know that. But historically, we've actually got a fair bit of information about them. We know they secluded themselves from society, so we checked that one off. Uh, they remained celibate. They had a lack of personal property, and importantly, they strongly believed in ritual immersion by water what we now know as baptism. And that was before them as well, but they kind of brought it to the forefront. So John was different, just in many ways from his contemporaries at the time. He would have been very different. If you saw John the Baptist and you saw a Pharisee next to each other, you were looking at two wildly different people. Wildly, wildly different people. And so, this is a good example where as Christians, we should always be reminded not to judge a book by its cover. John the Baptist is one of the most powerful biblical characters. And frankly, I would have personally struggled with that. I would have struggled with somebody who was wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey, and probably not tending to a lot of himself. I, I, I can admit I would have struggled with that. But Again, it's an example that we cannot just look at anybody on the surface, anyone on the surface, and say, oh, I have come to the conclusion, because we're probably wrong, <laughs> honestly. And so whether it's a pastor, whether it's a preacher, teacher, whether it's a coworker, a friend, you know, a family member, let's not get into the traps of falling or in judging a book by its cover. Let's give people the opportunity to explain their side, the opportunity to share what is on their heart. Because you might just be surprised. Now, verse 5 and 6. People from Jerusalem, excuse me, and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Have you ever noticed that people who are kind of on the extremes attract others? Have you ever seen that? So here we've got John who is obviously significantly different from a lot of people his time, and yet many people came out to see him. They wanted to hear his message. They wanted to know what was it about. They even confessed their sins and then were baptized. We're seeing repentance in action. This is what repentance looks like in action. The people heard the message from John, and then they took that step by confessing their sin and then becoming baptized. So what do you need to do? Is there an action that you need to take? I don't know. Is there something in your heart that you feel led to or you feel challenged by? Is there a ping that maybe God has put on your heart once upon a time and then you just haven't heeded? Uh, fun fact about me, the first time somebody actually uh, claimed that I would get in ministry, I was in college. And I denied them hard, <laughs> uh, very hard. And I was like, nope, no chance. That's never going to happen. Well, yeah, well, anyway. 
the point here is with, with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees and with so many others, we do need to take it to action. We can have all the knowledge in the world, and that doesn't take us where we need it to go. I read a devotional a while back that I really loved, and it just talked about this idea of being a lumberjack. You know, So as a lumberjack, or hopefully a lumberjack, you can know everything about an axe. You can know everything about a tree. You can know the humidity of the tree. You can know the metallurgy. You can know how to sharpen the axe. You can know everything about the area and all that you would need to know to be a lumberjack, right? But you're not a lumberjack until you smack that axe into the tree. At some point, you have to take that next step, whatever that step is. And we're all in that position constantly. It's a constantly involving part of our faith in our uh, relationship with Christ. There's always going to be another piece to what it means to be a Christian, right? Whether it's coming to church for the very first time, or whether it's engaging in worship, or coming to the altar to pray, or asking a friend to pray for you, or getting involved in a connect group. There's always one extra step that we can be engaging in. We just have to be trustful to the Lord, and we have to be willing to hear those things. So if there's a step, whatever that is, take it to prayer, see where God leads you, and then take that next step in faith. Now, moving on, verse 7 and 8. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And we're back to John the prophet. He cuts right to the point. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they had all that knowledge. They had everything they needed in their head, but they didn't apply it to their heart. Knowledge is good. Knowledge can take you very far, but knowledge is not faith. And they will never be the same thing, no matter how much we want. There's the scripture that says we must have faith like a child. Knowledge is good, guys, but knowledge does not replace faith. So, needless to say, these men, they had all the faith. They knew how to walk in this religion, but they didn't have the relationship. And this is the problem that John had with this group. And frankly, he wouldn't be the only one. Matthew 12, 33 through 37, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says, A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. And if a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes. How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. This is tough. This is real tough. Uh, I will be the first to admit that sometimes terrible things come out of my mouth. It's not something I work at. It's not something I hope for or anything like that. And it's gotten a lot better over the years. But there are times, and I've noticed a pattern in my life, when I either get overstressed. Usually it's when I get overstressed, and then I step away from the things that keep me pursuing the Lord. <laughs> and so how this actually works out in reality and practicality is I usually get a crazy amount of projects in my life, or I've got a bunch of work going on, or I've got too many things happening all at once. And then in order to try and tough it out or try and push through the problem, I slack on my prayer time, I slack on getting into the Word and all of that stuff. And then inevitably, when I get pushed a little too far, something bad comes out. 
the life <laughs> of busyness essentially pushes out my faith. And so I've had to really, really make an effort not to allow that happen. So if you find for yourself, if you are in the heat of a moment that not good things are coming out of your mouth, uh, it's not a mouth problem, it's a heart problem. Check your heart. Make sure you're receiving what you need. Slow down. We did a good job of that tonight. Slow down for just a little bit. Ask yourself some questions and say, okay, do I have a bad heart? Nine and ten. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. A few weeks ago, we talked about the lineage of Jesus, right? And the importance of lineage. He started with some pretty rough stuff, frankly. And there were some good moments sprinkled out throughout his lineage, but by and large, it wasn't all great. Well, John the Baptist is warning the... Jewish leaders here at the time that their lineage, their claim to be descendants of Abraham is not going to save them. That would have been a really strong dig into these guys. But it's a point that we can learn from today. Your faith is your own. No one else's. Your faith is not your parents. It's not your grandparents. It's not your friend's faith or anything like that. Your faith is yours and yours alone. And so what you do with that is entirely up to you. And that's good. And and I truly, I mean that in the best possible way. (laughs) In this crazy life where we lack control all the time, this is an area that we can actually have a say in. We actually have some control over. So if you want change, you can be the agent of that change. You want to repent? That's an action that you can take. That responsibility is yours, good and bad. And that's a blessing. That's the free will that God allows us to have, that we have that choice in front of us. Verse 11, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So repent, be baptized, and turn to God. Kind of like we've heard that before, right? couple of times. Great thing about this great faith that we call Christianity is there's no pop quiz. There's no seminary degree. There's none of that stuff. It's not about head knowledge. It's about what's in your heart. When I was uh, doing some kind of Christian counseling, coaching, and stuff like that, I was uh, working with a guy, really, really cool guy, super cool, and he was a doctorate professor at one of the local seminaries. And we were working through other random stuff, and I asked him this question that uh, Reverend Mike has shared with me before, and it was a simple question that just said, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus? You know, I hate to say it, but it was kind of a throwaway question that day. I mean, he's a seminary professor. I assumed it would be good. And he stops and he goes, yeah, I have, I have no idea what that means. I was like, uh, what? What, what? What do you mean? What do you mean you don't know what that means? He's like, yeah, I, I have no idea. I don't, I don't have any gear for that at all. Like, okay, I'll stop. We're, we're pushing everything else off hold. We have got to talk through this. So this man who is truly brilliant, 
Like he was, he was a brilliant theology professor. He had this incredible mind for the philosophies of God. And he had absolutely no heart for it. And it was a horrible thing to sit there and witness. And so thankfully, I'll cut to the end of the story, uh, he was baptized. <laughs> so a couple of weeks after that, he and his wife, she was very much a strong Christian woman, um, she baptized him at their local church. A theology professor getting baptized for the first time. Uh, that's, it, it was a mind-blowing situation, but that's the power of the Lord. With just a simple question. We need to remember that this, this head knowledge, again, it's important, it's good, but it doesn't replace a relationship. can never replace a relationship. Verse 12. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. All right, someday, Jesus is coming back, y'all. Um, we looked at the end of the book. Um, that seems to be what happens. I'm all about it. Now, here's the struggle when we start talking about Revelation and end-time stuff. One, there's a lot of interest in uh, end times prophecy and revelation prophecy and all that stuff right now, especially with what's happening in Israel. Um, no shocker there. Uh, anytime that tensions rise in that part of the world, people tend to look at that stuff. The challenge that I see, and I've actually talked to Vicky about this, we've had some really good conversations on this, is Jesus coming back is a message of hope. Revelations is a message of hope. It is not a message of fear. And so if you're seeing, hearing, reading, end time stuff, and it's just bringing fear, that's not the message I read when I read the Bible. And so that goes counter. And I want you to think about something. And this is exactly how I look at it. When you read the Bible, everywhere Jesus goes, does he bring hope or fear? Everywhere, right? When he was born in a manger, it's a message of hope. Yes? When he is bringing his ministry, when he's doing miracles, when he's raising the dead, when he's healing the sick, that's a message of hope, right? Why would it be any different when Jesus is coming back to free us from a fallen world? That seems pretty hopeful for me. I, I think that sounds great. I'm in. I'm all about that. And so again, this should not be a message of fear. We're Christians. We've accepted him. We are a part of his saved. That is an incredible message of hope. And so even when we talk about scriptures like this, where Jesus doesn't come and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, that's not a message of fear. That is hopeful for us. We are part of the wheat. We are a part of that harvest. That is a beautiful thing. We don't have to worry about that. For those who've accepted Christ for those who've received him in their hearts, for those who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, for those who've been baptized, it's good news. It's good news. Speaking of baptism. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. Baptism is a powerful witness. Yeah, it is a part of our testimony as Christians. 
when we make this public declaration of our sinfulness, of our need for a Savior, our desire to accept Him as Lord and Messiah in our lives, when we take ourselves, allow ourselves to be immersed in the baptismal waters and be born again. There's power in baptism. Have you guys ever been to a horse trough service here at Christ Church? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's power there. It's this like Holy Spirit crazy thing. If you've never been to a horse trough service, uh, we have them after Easter every year. Come check it out. Cancel any other plans. Be here for that because it is amazing. Yes! I love it! He's got his baptism certificate. How amazing is that? That's so cool. That's awesome, brother. I love that, man. Baptism is powerful. It's powerful. It changes our lives. It's one of these crazy deals. You can just feel everything change. Now, Jesus, after his baptism, as he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. So now as we start to wrap up, close down here, we see the climax of the chapter. It's escalated to this point. And what's so cool is God himself declares the authority of Christ. God himself makes the public declaration that Jesus is his son. So it's not just that Jesus is from the line of David and Abraham. Jesus is God's son. And that just blows everybody out of the water. So we have this intricate pairing of Jesus as son of God and son of man, both fully human and fully divine, all in one action. Does Jesus need to be baptized for his sins? Nope, no sins. But he does so out of obedience, which is cool. And out of that obedience, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and it rests upon him. And the presence here of the Holy Spirit, right? There's significance in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It means something new is about to happen. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes and starts to rest on somebody or, or rests upon them, God is up to something and it's going to be something good. Think about in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon all of the earth and then the earth was created. All of creation came from that. Then in Judges 6.34, the Holy Spirit puts on Gideon, literally says it wears Gideon, right before he uses him to save the people of Israel. And then in Judges later on, the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson, giving him the strength to escape captivity and defeat 1,000 men. And then in 1 Samuel 10, the young Saul, after being anointed king, had the Spirit of the Lord again rush upon him to where he will turn into a new man. And then Jesus, of course, when he receives the Holy Spirit, this is when he would begin his ministry on earth. He would fulfill what it means to be the Christ, to be the anointed one, the chosen one of God. Jesus would begin something new, not just for the Israelites. Jesus would begin something new for all people. But... Like any new amazing thing that God does, Jesus is going to face an adversary. He's going to face the father of lies, the tempter. Jesus will be tested. He'll be tried. 
Not because there's a chance that he'll fail, but to prove that he's going to succeed. <laughs> and at this beginning, most critical junction of Jesus' ministry, he's not going to back down against the adversary. He would fight against the lies. He's going to push back against the temptation. He's going to crush the trials all laid out in front of him. He is going to do what no individual person can do by fighting against what the rest of humanity has tried to fight against for millennia. But that's for next week. So we'll see you then. <laughs>